I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co, I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down where we're going. This week I met Owen O'Kane, the author of Ten to Zen and a trained psychologist at our Holly & Co HQ. A childhood spent dodging the violence on the streets of Belfast in the 1970s, Owen's early life was marred by bullying and struggling with his own sexual identity. There was nothing easy about this start in life, but I couldn't wait to hear not only the journey he took from priest to author, but also his words of advice on how business owners can put into practice a few simple rules to protect our own mental health. In this conversation, we discuss Owen's path to happiness and final fulfilment, the imposter syndrome, and is it real, to how there's an urgent need for us all to rewire our minds in so many areas that hold us back. I do hope this conversation gives you as much food for thought as it has for me. Hi, Owen. Hi, Holly. You and I have met now and again because we have so many lovely friends in common and everyone was saying to me, you have to chat to him on your podcast. And so I've read your book, Ten to Zen, and I knew I wanted to share it with everybody. Oh, well, thank you for having me here. I, I mean, I love the podcast. I think I said to you earlier, I love the podcast. Oh, and thank you. For me to come is great, actually. And, you know, because we've met on the street with a dog, but I yeah. think it's great to be here and... Yeah, I'd get to talk about oh, I know. all yeah. the things that matter. It's just been an amazing thing to read your book. And we're going to talk about your book. And I know you're busy writing your second book, which mm. we're so excited about. But I would love to start with your backstory. You were born in Belfast, Northern Ireland in the early 1970s, mm. right in the midst of the troubles and violence. Would you be able to share a bit about that childhood and what your experience was like growing up in that type of environment. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one because when you live there, you don't really, you don't see it as different or abnormal. When you grow up in Belfast, you grow up in the Troubles. Everything that goes on there, the bombs, the bullets, people dying, because you see it so often, it becomes normal. It did certainly become normal for me. And ironically, I didn't realise how difficult or how abnormal it was until I left. So it was when I moved to London got out and had a bit of breathing space I suddenly looked back and thought bloody hell that was tough because it was all about survival it was about getting by I mean there wasn't a period in my growing up where there wasn't trouble so mm. the entire time it was about navigating where you could go was there going to be a bomb was there going to be a security alert so you did spend a lot of time literally getting by navigating keeping safe and, and that was normal yeah. how do you think this time affected you and do you have strong memories of this time 
I do now. It's really interesting. You know, obviously you train as a therapist and part of training as a therapist is you have to go into your own therapy. And one of the things I realised when I came to London was suddenly I'd hear a loud bang and I'd react. And I'd look around and nobody else would have reacted. In fact, I was just writing about this today. I've been at a show once and the, the show opened with a gunshot and I literally jumped to the ground when the gunshot went off because it was an automated kind of protective response and nobody else in the theatre moved and I remember thinking at the time like oh that's not normal because you're kind of programmed to you know to be in threat mode the whole time so I suppose for me when I left I realised I didn't know I was anxious when I lived there because you just get on with it but then when I left I suddenly realised god I never feel safe I'm always kind of wondering if something's going to go wrong and interestingly I always sleep with earplugs in always and I couldn't work out I think we were on holiday a couple of years ago and I'd forgotten my earplugs and I thought I was really bothered that I, I didn't have my earplugs with me and I just kind of said to Mark my other half I said we need to go to a chemist and get earplugs and I then started to think about what that was and then suddenly remembered that I slept as a kid with my fingers in my ears for most of my childhood because it was often a lot of riots or stuff going on outside where I lived so there was always noise and I learned to sleep with your fingers fingers in my ears and I said it to my dad I said um do you remember me sleeping with my fingers in my ears and he said oh my god we couldn't get you to stop you always had your fingers in your ears so I mean it's just one example of trauma that you carry with you because that became a way of keeping the noise out and as an adult it's a habit I formed your habit you formed Well, you were brought up in a very Catholic area, mm. um, very religious. You went to a school, St. Gabriel's High School, mm. and then you went to St. Malachi's Grammar School to do your A-levels. Mm. But this wasn't a happy time for you either, and you were very badly bullied. Mm. Would you mind telling me about that time in your life? Yeah, it was an interesting one. I mean, I'm gay, but obviously back then I hadn't come out. But, you know, I mean, there was a lot of clues when I look back now. You know, I was playing piano, loved musical theatre, didn't like football, didn't really fit in with a lot of the kids. And of course, kids are quite clever. They're psychologists. They read mm-hmm. other people. And the kids worked out I was different. Mm-hmm. And difference wasn't tolerated a lot at all. No. I wasn't tolerated well. So not only was I navigating the troubles, I was also navigating being bullied quite badly at school. Yeah. Because I didn't fit in. I didn't know how to fit in either. There were a group of guys I went to school with. And interestingly, we all turned out, we kind of knocked around together. And we all turned out to be gay. So it was really, really interesting as 11-year-old kids that we, 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 we kind of flocked together. And we were all buddies, really. And of course, in adult life, we all turned out to be gay. But as 11-year-olds, we had worked it out, mm-hmm. congregated together. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was interesting for every day from I was 11 until 16, they called us the gay team. You remember mm-hmm. the, the A-team from years yes, ago? Yes. And the kids would sing the theme of the, a, the A-team, but they would call it the gay team. And we got that every day. So we would walk down a corridor at school. Everywhere we went, they would sing the gay team. And did you... But you didn't know yourselves? Well, I just kind of... I knew what the insinuation was, was. But of course, being Catholic, I mean, you're gay, you're going to hell. Yeah. I mean, you're screwed. Yeah, so, it was, it, yeah, so this wasn't yeah. something that was being no. processed by yourself So I was kind of thinking, well, I don't know why they're saying that. You know, I'm going to grow up and get married like everyone else. And then, of course, you, you start to think, oh, God, maybe not. You know, you get to 14, mm-hmm. 15 and you realise, OK, maybe this is a bit, this is going to be different for me. But then the religion moved in mm. and you'd go to church and you'd hear them talking about what's right and wrong just before I come out to my parents. 
there was a fire and a gay sauna or something in Dublin. And I was kind of deliberating, telling them, and I thought, I'm going to have to sit down, talk them through all of this and explain. And literally the day before I told them, we were sitting watching the television the night before, and this article come on about a gay sauna going on fire in Dublin. And my mum just really, really straightly looked at the telly and said, my God, I didn't realise there were any gay people here. I thought they were all in America. And I thought, fucking hell, she's in for a big shock. <laughs> in 24 hours. You're going to need a cup of tea, Mum. She's going to need more than a cup of tea for this one. But that was a mentality, you know, it really Gosh. was. It was something that was out there. Yeah. It was something that was other. It wasn't seen as a, yeah. you know, you, you might as well have said that you were a, a murderer, really. Do you know what I mean? There wasn't a lot of tolerance or understanding. When, when gay, I, my first ever gay pride, I would think I was probably late teens. And there were about 50 people at gay pride. No. Yeah, one float. And I remember I went and I hid in a side street watching, thinking, oh, I better not get caught. I don't want anyone to see yeah, me. Yeah, and I gay, just want to see. Yeah, and I think Gay Pride over there now has about 40,000, 50,000 people. So it's a massive, you know, I, I mean... It's, Seismic shift, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it? it's incredible. Because, you, you know, thinking about what you've endured, and we're going to go on to all the amazing things that you're mm. doing at the moment, but from literally bombs to literally the bullies to you know you were na- to then navigating religion and we tend to forget we really do this this seismic shift that we've got to and yet we've still got so far still to go but how marginalized excluded lgbt plus communities were and i spoke to henrietta founder of lily's kitchen just last week and they created this pride range for uh, dog food and they received hate mail and trolling from their customers mm just for creating a rainbow packaged yeah, yeah. dog food. Yeah. So I I can't imagine actually the pain you went through. But on leaving school, you decided you wanted to be a priest. Mm. I understand why. <laughs> One of the things that bonds us is my other half is Irish. So, and he's a bit older. So I, yeah. I, I've been, you know, for the last 20 years, I've heard about Ireland and, you know, the way that children were brought up. Mm. But you wanted to be a priest and you entered a monastery in Dublin where you spent four years of yeah, your life. Yeah, just get into my fourth year. Yeah. yeah well, and you, what led you to pursue that path? And I mean, was it this acceptance that you wanted or? It's an interesting question. I think if you asked me that back then, I really did have a strong belief in God. You know, yeah. I probably still do at some levels. I believe there's something bigger. Yes. I don't know what that looks like. I don't believe in organised religions anymore, but I do believe that there's probably something beyond here that I find quite hard to explain. So I think I've always had some sort of spirituality, but at the time it felt like I had a, you know, my goal and my mission then was to help people. Mm-hmm. There was a really strong innate sense of, I don't want my life just to be about making money or being successful or being known for any reason. I just wanted to live a life that's about giving stuff back. Mm-hmm. I believed in God. My family were very, very Catholic. I mean, I'd go to bed, there were statues, Our Lady with the luminous eyes watching down in the bed. I mean, it was a whole works here. You know, there was Frank like... Frank was just you, telling me about that. Yeah, that's, you, that's the you're Mary with the light bulb. Is that right? No, this one had a luminous eye. So I would have... Oh, wow. I had a crucifix behind me. Uh-huh. I had a picture of Jesus to the right... And then I had the Virgin Mary, whose eyes would light up at night time. So when I'd go to sleep, I was being watched from all corners. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a really strong... Yes, quite strong. It was very strong. Quite religion. strong. <laughs> yeah, just yes. a bit. Of course, you go to, you know, your parents were going to chapel and, you yes, know, it was all a very yes. normal part of it. And of course, having a son, a priest was a big thing back then. Yes. So I, I think 
was it in part me trying to to please and to not be ro- to, to be noticed? I mean, I, if I'm being truthful, I'm sure there was some degree of opting out of the fear and the coming out. I don't think it was conscious, if I'm being honest. I think at the time I was thinking, oh, this is what I'll do with my life. Yeah, yeah. Now that I'm older and wiser, I look back and I think there was probably a degree of escapism. There was yeah. probably a degree of safety. Yeah. There was probably some thought of, I'm never going to have to come out here. Yeah. Because it's celibate. Yeah, so, yeah. Now, of course, yeah. you, you can't contain that. You can't live that way. So, But I did it. And, you know, it was probably four of the best years of my life. Really? It wasn't a bad experience. Yeah. I met some amazing people. You did some incredible projects. You would do homeless projects. You would work with kids who were disabled. I worked with people who were terminally ill, which then Led had you, a big yeah, significance yeah. later in my career. Was with some incredible guys in the monastery. We had really good fun. There was real banter and yeah. camaraderie. Yeah. Um, I loved the monastic lifestyle. I think my interest in mindfulness and meditation even goes back to then. So there was something about the lifestyle that did work for me. Yeah, yeah. But then there was another part of me that thinks, mm. I've never explored myself. And there was a moment, wasn't there? There was a, there was a moment where you were decided that you would take a dip in some healing water. Oh, to Lourdes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes, what, what could tell me that well, story? That, that kind of happened afterwards. So I, I, I was in the monastery, came out and thought, okay, well, what am I going to do with my life now? And very quickly after I came out, I got an opportunity to go to Lourdes, which is a Catholic pilgrimage where the Virgin Mary allegedly appeared. And I went and it was a good trip. And there was an opportunity one day to go into the water and be healed. And I thought, well, God, I might as well give this a shot. You know, I'm here, I'm on a freebie. Maybe I'll get this gay thing sorted out while I'm here. So kind of unknown to anybody, I hadn't come out or anything at this stage. I lined up to get into the water and... Um, I don't know if you've been there, but you basically queue up and it's no, almost like a swimming pool. Right, okay. And you go in and when you walk through the door, you're guided into a chair and then you're literally dipped into the water. Oh, right. So I went through the whole process and literally I was about to get into this chair and these two gorgeous French guys with no tops on, just in their shorts, came over. And one had me by one arm and one was holding me by the other. And I just remember thinking at the time, fucking hell. <laughs> All I could think of in this entire <laughs> mystical process was the two French guys dipping me into the water. And I, rem- I remember coming out thinking, shit, that hasn't worked. It you hasn't know, worked. That hasn't and worked. And also I was thinking it was a divine intervention. Would you know Don't something? Don't you think? Would you know something? I really do see it as one of the pivotal moments of my life because actually it did work in a way because when I, when I came out, I remember thinking, I can't live this. I can't lie about this. You know, if, mm. I'm, if I can spot an attractive bloke Mm. on a pilgrimage while getting dipped into holy water this ain't gonna go away (laughs) you know this is not the phase my father thought it was later later down the road it wasn't the phase and I think actually there was something in that moment where it was really concrete this is part of who I am and if you trust in the universe in a way it just it's slightly there was a whole reason that it wasn't well, it was kind of two heat. older men, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. head to toe in something, yeah, dipping you in the water. Exactly. It was just happened to be two hunks. And it was the beginning of me kind of coming to terms with, yeah. with that part of me. Yeah. It took a long time, but, you know, I think that was the beginning. Gosh. Actually. And you had yeah. this extraordinary difficult upbringing, but you survived it. But we haven't really spoken about your talents and what you love to do. You were obviously a very 
intellectual child, you had this inherited passion for people um, looking after them. And you'd studied at Queen's University in Belfast, and then you moved to London to continue your studies, Mm. which led you to work for the NHS, looking after those who are at the end of their life. And I don't think I've ever met anyone that's worked in that field or that stage of of Mm. someone's life. Can you tell me not only what it was like, but what you took out of that experience? I mean, yeah, my career split in two. Half was health and half psychology. And the first half, most of my nursing career was in palliative care. And again, a bit like the monastery, you know, you hear four years in the monastery and you think, God, that must have been dull. Actually, it wasn't. It was great. And likewise, you know, I think it was about nine, ten years in palliative care. That wasn't dull or it wasn't heavy or... You mean, there were moments it was quite sad and difficult, but it was, for me, it was probably the most privileged experience that you can have as a human being because you're with people who are probably at the most vulnerable point in their life. Not only them, but their families. And you were in this privileged position where you were working really closely with them. So part of my job was to be with people as they were coming towards the end, helping them be comfortable, helping them come to terms with a diagnosis, helping the family. So you spent a lot of time with people just helping them journey. And it always amazed me, really, because people have immense courage. And I suppose really what, what I learned, I mean, I think I gained more, to be quite honest. I mean, I was telling the story recently about, you know, I'd, I remember getting into work one day and feeling... We were changing our mortgage or something. The dog wasn't feeling well. There was just life stuff going on. Mm. I was a bit frazzled about the mortgage and the dog and being busy and all that stuff. And I went in and I was looking after a young guy in the community at this point. I think he was like 22, 23. And this young guy was dying of a really aggressive cancer and he was dying quickly. Um, And him and I developed a really good kind of bond and it was my job to support him. And I went in to see him and I was really preoccupied with all of my own Mm. stuff. Now, of course, I switched into professional mode but I remember sitting down with him and as I was talking to him he he was looking at the sky and um and I thought for a moment I thought he might have been a bit delusional he was taking lots of opioids and stuff and I did wonder if he was kind of zoning out for a bit but then he didn't he came back and he said I'm just watching the sky here isn't it incredible that every moment the sky delivers a new landscape and he was absorbing all of this Mm. And he was talking about things he was looking forward to. This Mm. guy had about a month to live. Mm -hmm. And he was appreciating the sky. Mm. He was going away with his friends that weekend. And he was just savouring life, like every millisecond Mm. of his life. Mm. And I remember that day feeling really challenged and thinking, my God, these people have a lot to teach us because we get preoccupied. We're all dying. We all know that. But I think when people are terminally ill, it's a real thing. Yeah. And they're forced to think about mortality and life and what matters. And I think people who work in that line of work, if you're open to it, then you're just open to this font of wisdom. And gift. Yeah, and I just kind of think, which was part of the book, I thought, I can't leave that out of the book. I've got to talk about that experience and how that enriches, how it enriches me, how it influences how I work. You know, because I do believe, I mean, my God, just grab and embrace every day. Don't get preoccupied and caught up do you think we're conditioned though to in survival mode to not think about death all the time I was going to say you know one of my things on my 40th birthday and I've said it many times and I'll never stop saying it but I worked out that I there's 29,000 days on average if you're blessed to live Mm. I had 14,000 days left on my Mm. 40th birthday it was one of the most 
pinnacle moments in my life. It is about pursuing my passions. It's about mm. being happy. Um, my other half is more pessimistic, let's put it that way. And I'm a little bit more optimistic. Yeah. But as I say to him, but if this was it, you know, today was was it a glorious day? Was it an amazing day? I talked to my son about it. You know, I t- it, it's now in our absolute daily life that I tend to think about death, you yeah. know, in, in, a, in a very positive way. Yeah. But... Not everyone does that. And I didn't do it for the first 40 years of my life. So do you think we're just conditioned to protect ourselves from this? I think we're conditioned to try and we all believe that we're in control. And I really believe that's part of our condition and that we think that we can control everything and that, that, you know, we're invincible and we're not. And like Buddhists talk a lot about impermanence and that the road to happiness is accepting that everything's impermanent, you know, the whole time we're evolving and changing and you know part of their rituals can be actually focusing on death for that very reason not in a gloomy pessimistic way but I see it differently I just kind of think if I'm reminded of my palliative care days or I'm reminded of that whole concept of life moving quickly similar to what you've just described I just think I've got a life here Mm. I'm very lucky I'm going to live it I'm going to enjoy it Mm -hmm. and more importantly I'm just going to make whatever changes I can you know if we all leave the planet and we leave some legacy mm-hmm. or we leave something of value or we've made some change. Well, it's not a, an incredible thing. Mm. And I just kind of think, well, every day I'm here, there's an opportunity to do that. There's mm. an opportunity to impact. And that's kind of generally how I, generally, you know, I try to live that way because that keeps me fueled. Yeah. So if I become tired or a bit demoralized or a bit caught up in the there's nothing busyness, like There's nothing like switching that conversation on in your mind, I would say to understanding that the dog's going to be okay, yeah. I'll find a mortgage. Yeah. It's a very quick way of... It's stuff. Really, yes, yeah, separating yeah. life's yeah. shit yeah. plus the really important yeah, yeah. bits. Do you know what I do? This is going to sound really weird, but I'm going to confess. <laughs> I sometimes take a walk around a graveyard. Right. And the reason I do it is there's a graveyard in yes, Richmond here yes, that I yes. walk around to. It's just over near the park. And sometimes just every now and then I'll just take a walk around. And what I do is if I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed or I've got a load of stuff going on, I take a walk around the graveyard and I look at every tombstone and I think every one of these people had, had similar worries. Yeah. They would worry about money, what's coming yeah. next. And I just find it really sobering that... Mm. Everything is transitory. Nothing's really worth getting too caught up in. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's one of my weird things that I do, but I just find it, I find it remarkably comforting, actually. Yeah. I, well, gosh, that's a, is that a tip? Walk around a graveyard? Maybe it it could be for someone. I think I remember actually in my first book putting that in there. And I think the the publisher at the time came along and said, we'll take that out. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe not a tip. Maybe not. And one of my tips at the end of this chapter is just have another walk around yeah, the graveyard. Maybe not one for everyone, but hey. So from palliative care, you went on to study psychology mm. and now you have worked in the NHS for over 20 years. So I don't think there is um, sort of a greater authority of mental health life coaching that we've had on this podcast. So if I could delve into sort of your mastermind specialist subject, if you were sitting on that leather chair, what would you say is good mental health? I think it depends on the, the individual because you're, a good mental health day for you will be different to what a good mental health day for me is. But I think ultimately it's all about how we function day to day. You know, mm-hmm. and when I say function, it's not about just getting through the day. I think for me, good mental health is about functioning, getting through my day, doing all the stuff that I want to do, but actually feeling 
reasonably peaceful, calm, happy, motivated within that. Yeah. Because I think, you know, we've all been there. There are periods when we do get really preoccupied or pulled in to the demands of life. And then suddenly you start feeling stressed, overwhelmed, angry, frustrated. And for me, that's not good mental health. Because I think you can survive it for a while, but I think we're, we're not equipped to deal with stress at that level for long periods of time. And I see the brain like any other organ in the body. It can become tired. Mm. It can become depleted. If we're not processing stuff and if we're wearing it down a lot, eventually it will become unwell. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people miss. We, we'll go to the doctor if we've got a sore leg. We'll, yes. we'll rock up if we're worried about our health. But we tend to ignore the mind as something that will keep going and functioning for us. Automatic. And actually it doesn't. And I think this is what Very we're saying. I mean, look at the stats even with kids. I mean, this is remarkable. From 2004 until now, anxiety and depression with kids has increased by 48%. I mean, that's ginormous. Or that study on well-being that was done last year by a huge organisation, they interviewed 5,000 people. 75% described feeling overwhelmed in work on a regular basis, 75%. But when I go into corporate organisations, so when I do the talks and I give the workshops, I see exactly the same thing. You know? Do you think it's because we're more in touch with it? We've got the surveys, we have the language. Do we now label very bad days or teenage angst? You know, <gasps> you know there I was with Elias Morissette and singing and, you know, grunging and, you know, writing in my diary how much I hated people and everything yeah, like yeah. that. Yes. Was that depression? Was it not? And, and so are no, we... No, I think it's a great question because I'm not a huge fan of the diagnosis that we place on people, you know, depression, anxiety, OCD. I mean, I think they're important sometimes clinically because some people need a diagnosis to get correct. the correct treatment. Correct. However, what I believe is that we're all human beings and we're all on the spectrum. And it's part of our humanity sometimes to feel low. Sometimes mm-hmm. we might feel more anxious than normal. And I believe that we're all on a kind of spectrum that mm-hmm. we all kind of rock up and down on and nobody stays level the entire time. And it's interesting, when I go in and I do the talks or the workshops, often at the beginning of a workshop, Depending on if, if I go into a corporate bank, they may think, oh, this is not relevant mm-hmm. to me. And then when I start to talk and I'll say, OK, has anyone in the last week not slept properly? Everyone raises their hand. Has anyone had moments when they feel a bit overwhelmed? Everyone raises their hand. Has anyone had moments when they feel demoralised or it's all a bit too much or what's the point? So then what you get is the majority of people in the room resonate with every statement you've made. And then I say, and that's mental health. Mm-hmm. It's not about the diagnosis. It's not about do you have depression? Do you have anxiety? Or the labelling. Yeah, it's about if there are moments in your life where you're feeling genuinely distressed mm-hmm. and it's getting in the way of your life, then that's a mental health issue. Mm. I think part of the problem is mental health for years was, it was almost like a dirty word. Yes, it was. It's like a bad word. If you were mental health, you were seen as somebody yeah. who was a bit deranged or yeah. mad or yeah. it was associated Locked with psychosis. Or, yes, exactly. Well, actually, I don't see it that way. I just see it unless it's just mental wellness. Do you have mm-hmm. a mind that functions well for you? Mm-hmm. And I argue, look, if you're not taking time out of your day, hence the motivation to write 10 to Zen, if you're not taking moments out of your day every day, to look after the maintenance of your mind, mm-hmm. of course it's going it's yeah. to fail you every now and then. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a no-brainer to me. I, look, I know if, if I don't do, you know, if I don't practice what I preach, if I have a day when the meditation or the self-care stuff doesn't get into the diary, 
the quality of my day is different. Mm. You know, I'm grumpier than usual, yeah. less productive. I don't yep. get as much done. And the research is really, really clear. You know, these, this is 10 minutes of your day, but it increases productivity. Profits increase. Teams, you know, work better together. Creativity, which I know you'll be really mm. interested in. What we know is that when people take time out to quieten their mind and to allow things to process, they're way more creative. Some of the studies are saying around 60% more creative than they would normally be. But we all tell ourselves it's a good thing. Keep going, keep going, do more, longer hours, you know, achieve, achieve, achieve. And actually, I see it the opposite. It's not the way. Well, what a year it's been. We've taken the podcast on the road for the first time, welcoming Thomasina Myers, Levi Roots and Mark Constantine so far. But our final stop for this tour this year will be on the 21st of November at The Hub in Edinburgh with Charlie Gladstone, the founder of Peddlers and the Good Life Experience. The evening will include wonderful entertainment, magical Holly & Co details and a fantastic opportunity to shop small business, drink a delicious tipple or two, mingle with like-minded people, make new friends and I will ensure you'll be thoroughly and utterly inspired. I believe that one conversation has the ability to change the course of your life forever and I want it to be mine. So don't delay, get your ticket to Conversations of Inspiration, the podcast live from Edinburgh in partnership with the Royal Bank of Scotland. This is the last live episode for this year, so make sure you don't miss out. Head to holly.co to get your ticket today. Every week there's an opportunity to have your very own ad break on this podcast and it's all thanks to our partner NatWest. NatWest's mission is to empower entrepreneurs and so they're offering their very own ad break on this very podcast to any small business listening to help promote themselves for free. For your chance to win this incredible opportunity worth thousands and thousands of pounds, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreak at holly.co or find out more information on our website. This week's winner of our NatWest Independent Ad Break is Little Crumbs. Over to you. My name is Sarah and I'm the founder of Little Crumbs. My degree in food science and nutrition showed me how vital it is that we all learn the basic life skills of cooking, the experience that will feed us, bring us together in a social manner and have a positive effect on our health later in life. Horrified by the amount of children living in a virtual world, I wanted to create something that would provide hands-on activities instead of adding up on their screen time. I'm a strong believer that children should end their day covered in flour and glitter and this should be a magical experience of creativity and definitely include jumping in muddy puddles. And so our subscription boxes were born, each box including a short story and a personalised envelope from Mrs Crumb at Crumble Coast. Inside are wholesome activity cards that touch on the fundamentals of food, sustainability and connecting with nature. We all know how crazy the life of a parent can be, so our hassle-free boxes include all dry ingredients. If you would like to find out more, then please get in touch through our Instagram at Little Crumbs Cookery or visit our website at www.littlecrumbs.co.uk. Thank you. 
we'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people. Take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses can tell and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. What have you got to lose? Get recording. I can't wait to have a listen. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. A lot of people who are listening to this podcast are small business owners or they're thinking about it or they've got a dream and, you know, and we know that the future is actually that, that mm. is going to be the majority of people having to wear so many hats, deal with quite extreme stress levels, which might be through lack of sales, to scaling, to debt, to money, to employees, and then trying to balance the rest of what you're meant to do, which is life, life um, yeah. with all of that. And the pressure can really build mm. up. And would you say that what are these levels of healthy and unhealthy stress mm. and those sort of tips to deal with it? Because I think that there is, again, a little bit, and I liked your phrase that, you know, you're not labelling. You just have this spectrum of going up and down mm. on the waves mm. And you need to look after it. Similarly, I can be asked a lot in questions to me will be, you know, I think I'm, you know, I'm in my first year and I think I'm going to burn out and maybe I'm wrong or right. And but it's my opinion. I'll say, guess what? First year of running a business or starting a business it's not child's play. You are going to be working. It's tough. Really. It's tough. And actually, it doesn't change because of the way you're your feeling about it. You know, the phone will still ring and these things will happen and you've got to take that opportunity. Mm. But it's about being happy. Don't get me wrong. I'm, you know, is that why Tenter Zen exists? Because actually a little dose of goodness can help you survive these times. Yeah. I think, again, it, it's a really important subject because, you know, a business won't survive unless you show up for it. Mm. And I really believe that you've got to be there and you've got to show up for it, but it's how you show up for it. And I think the kind of caretaking that goes on in your life. So if you are spinning lots of plates, you know, I know in my life at the minute I'm spinning a lot of plates, writing books, giving talks, doing workshops, home, family life, writing articles, press and media stuff. At any one given time, I can have eight or nine plates spinning mm -hmm. at one time. And of course, as a human being, there will be moments when I think, oh, my God, I've got bloody so much to do today. But I've also learned as well that some plates I don't need to spin on particular days. Mm. And that doesn't mean that I don't show up. I'll still rock up. But I think what happens for me personally and a lot of people I work with is people feel that they have to be spinning all of the plates at one time. Mm. And they Give think, me an example of that. What well, it's just kind of like, you, you, you know, you can't be if you're working on a deadline for a project. You can't then really be working on another creative idea while trying to do the books and run a home. You know, it could be, OK, what can be parked at the moment? Yeah. Still on the list. It's still yeah. on the radar. But what can be parked for now? Where does my energy, where does my time need to go at the moment? And I think that's for a lot of people. It's all around perfectionism. Mm -hmm. People believe that they have to, you know, they have to get it all right at any one given time. My argument is, no, actually, you don't need to get it all right. And you might screw up and you might get it wrong sometimes. Great, because you'll learn from that. Every time it goes wrong, you'll pick up and you'll learn from it. But for me, it's all about the balance, the boundaries, saying no some mm. of the time in business, I think is a really important thing. Sometimes the power I, in saying no, and, isn't and it? And sometimes it's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. not just because of mm -hmm. time, but it could be even ethically or value-driven 
it's a kind of actually no I'm not going to do that no matter how lucrative or whatever it is if it doesn't sit with your values then it won't be successful you've got to create space to know I think it's almost like falling into quicksand Mm. when you're in business you Mm. know there's so much happening suddenly you're in the muck and you're like oh my god what do I do Mm. and I think sometimes what you've got to be able to do is come out of the quicksand Mm -hmm. dust off regroup regroup and stop and look and say okay what could I do differently? A great thing I learned once was um, you can achieve three things in a day. Mm. So, you know, you sit there, don't you, and you create that to-do list. And it's always good to have that list. But then what I can tend to do now is create another list right next to it, which are the three things that have to be done today to make my week a better week. Yeah. You know, so getting, you know, getting the big stuff out the way, doing that. So that come Friday or come another day that actually... I really feel a sense of achievement in yeah, the week, absolutely. you know, so that I can tick those things off. But just when you're talking about this, you know, I, I think back to, you know, myself and this sort of image of basically having to be a slight wonder woman and, you know, thinking about mental health back when we started not in the high street was considered a sign of weakness as far as I was concerned. Probably it wasn't, but you wouldn't, I wouldn't ever openly talk about it. And I remember reading Arianna Huffington's Thrive back in 2014, and that slightly changed my life. There's sort of a woman talking about the importance of sleep and good mental health. And it was a little out there at the time. Then it was um, a quote that was in there. At the moment, our society's notion of success is largely composed of two parts – money and power Mm. but it's time for this third metric beyond money and power one founded on well-being wisdom and our ability to wonder and to give back and it just slightly stopped me in my tracks Mm. at that point and so it's so important what you're doing not only writing these books but getting out into corporates understanding because this is a real shift isn't it we're rewiring society it's a massive shift and I suppose for me the brand my brand is about well-being you know, and I suppose I don't feel in any good way that I have a choice because, look, I, I try to represent leading a life that is worth value and substance and leading a life that's balanced, you know. So if I rock up at a gig not feeling balanced or I haven't managed my own self-care, well, people are not going to get the best from me. Mm. And I believe it's the same for any business, really. You know, the healthier, the more balanced you are, the more level, the quieter your mind is. Not only does your business get more from you, but I think people around you get more from you as well. So I see, you know, it's a great quote that, but I see it the opposite way. I would say for me, it's about prioritise your well-being and your self-care and all of that stuff primarily. Because when you've got that, you've got a really solid foundation and Mm. you've got a base Mm. so that if times get tough or things get a bit bumpy, it just means that you're Mm. more solid. Mm. And, and and when you say prioritize it, I think some people maybe misinterpret that as priority in my time, you know, but I've got, you know, I own, I've got a family, I've got a house, I've got a business, we can't pay the mortgage and I've got to do, actually it's prioritizing in it in terms of committing to do it. Well, see, I, see, I, I never buy that as an argument because when I'm in oh, and I'm talking this. to, yeah, because when I'm, when I'm in talking to corporates, what they will, you know, I'll get this, I hear this all the time and then I'll say to them, okay, can you do me a favour, will you take out your phone? And of course they do and I say, how much time have you spent on social media today? Mm. How much time have you spent Googling or searching? How much time have you spent doing X, Y and Z? And of course, everybody will be able to 
to identify that they have found time to do other stuff. Mm. So mm. I don't take that. I mm. kind of think my program is mm. 10 minutes a day. So when I get the, mm. the bullshit, I don't have time. I don't buy yeah. it. You do have 10 minutes. Because you're not asking someone to go no. and do a gym a, session for one and a half yeah. hours a day. And that's why I didn't create a one hour program. Because yeah. I know for most people that isn't realistic. <laughs> I know what it's like to rush out the door in the mornings with hair everywhere. Not that I yes. have much hair, but you know how it is. You get up and you run around and dog and yeah. food where am I today which talk am I doing I've got to do the book later where am I who's doing you know you're just managing the yes, entire day yes. so I know what it feels like but I also know what it feels like to then sit down and stop yeah yeah catch my breath focus make myself kind of ground yes to then go out and say okay I've got this yeah, I, I can, I can do this. Something else I'd love to talk to you about is this phrase that wasn't even coined a few years ago, the imposter syndrome. Mm. It's something we can all struggle with, especially women, especially women in business. And my mission, one of my missions is to empower all women in business mm. to banish or in some degree banish the imposter syndrome. From a psychological understanding, what is your advice on this? And listening to this critical voice and where you know it's great again that we've got a label for it I mean mm. to start with that label has allowed people to talk about it yeah but I worry sometimes now that you know I'm asked to sit on panels of women talking about the imposter syndrome whereas what are, one of the things I want to strive to do is create some solutions to get rid of the things that create the imposter syndrome yeah, yeah. Tell me what your view is. Yeah, I don't think you ever get rid of it because I think regardless, I understand imposter syndrome because, you know, when you come from a working class background where there's been a lot of trauma in the background with the troubles and when you've been bullied and stuff, of course you develop a question about am I enough, Mm -hmm. which was a big question for me growing up. So, of course, then when you move ahead and you develop your career and you become successful, every now and then that question, am I enough, will jump up. Mm-hmm. And it can't not because if you're programmed to question mm-hmm. if you're enough, that question will come up and it's a normal response. And I think people who buy into, you know, imposter syndrome will be led by it. So they, they're the people who won't take a risk. They're the people who will go backstage. They're the people who will apologize. They're the people who will minimize their achievements. Whereas my argument is, look, when you see imposter syndrome for what it is, it's just literally faulty programming. Okay. Because somebody's yeah. told you that you're not good enough or that you shouldn't. That doesn't mean that it's true. Yes. And there are people who go against imposter syndrome and say, yeah, I can hear that. And I recognize that every now and then it's going to come up. But that doesn't mean to say that I'm going to listen to you or I'm going to engage with it. Because you've got to then weigh up the evidence and say, well, actually, I am enough. Mm-hmm. You know, look at mm-hmm. what I have done. Look at what I have achieved. Look at what I am able to do. So it's kind of almost like really learning that skill of seeing it literally as... Faulty programming. A faulty programming. Or it's not your fault that some teacher has said something to you when you're 14 or 15. And, you know, and that's meant that now I instantly feel that I can't do the finances of my business because I definitely screwed up my GCSEs. And then it's best someone else does that for me. And this is something that I hear. But tell me about then. One of my things at the moment is saying, well, okay, the imposter syndrome in business, I feel, is led by some of these narratives. Maybe women feel, for instance, that men have always done fine. Their fathers might have done it. The bank manager was always a man, whatever those things are. And somehow you've got in your mind that and you weren't great at maths. Let's just say that was the case. Can you recognize it? But then is there benefit in then saying, so, you know what, I'm going to take it. 
And now I'm going to do something about it. And as an adult, not a child, but as an adult, you squash the notion. Is yeah. that is that possible? Can you prove, oh, can you, you get can. better? In- of course you can. I mean, all of our patterns are like, they're neuropathways. So all the time you've got neuropathways firing out, which are basically habitual. You know, it's, if you think of the technicalities of the brain, they fire out all of the time. And that's really what kind of fuels our patterns. What I argue all of the time is if you've learned a a pattern or a response, you can unlearn it. And the key thing is that you have to identify the patterns that don't work for you. So, for example, if it was imposter syndrome that, you know, jumps into your life every now and then, you can see that for what it is. It's a pattern. But the more you go against the pattern and say, okay, I'm not going to be ruled by that. I'm not going to be dictated by that. Then every time, every single moment, you make a decision to go the other way, you change your neural pathways. You're you're literally rewiring. rewiring. You're rewiring. So what you then do is you set up new patterns. So you Mm. then change the structure of how your neural pathways fire out, and then you get a new automated response. So I know in my own life that imposter syndrome would have been much bigger for me, you know, way back. It comes in and out at different points of my career. I notice when I go into new waves of my career, or when the book came out, for example, the first time my book came out, imposter syndrome jumped in massively thinking no one's going to buy this yeah is it good enough now i could see it for what it is and i kind of recognize it as an old like an old friend not a good friend but an old friend that jumps in every now and then and of course had to spot it for what it is but not over engage with it mm-hmm. and kind of say do you know something this is out of my control mm. but based on other stuff i've done in my life i tend to make things work Mm. And it would be great if this works. And if it doesn't work, I've done my best. So it's about how you manage. How you manage it. How you manage it. And, and tell me, what do you feel about the fact that we can talk at this point in time? So there's such benefit about talking about the imposter syndrome, talking about mental health, talking about depression, anxiety. Do you think there can be also a fear of living within these labels that restrict us from moving forward and of course I'm not talking about extreme cases here I'm talking about the everyday lives where maybe I might hear a lot and we talk a lot on my social media about it imposter syndrome and all those sorts of things but one of the things I really want to spearhead is us understanding how to rewire that we can do that and that we don't live now in an in another label that we sort of settle into and actually nothing gets solved. Yeah, and it's a good point because sometimes labels can create excuses not to move forward. And people use labels all of the time and say, well, I can't do it because I've got imposter syndrome or I can't do it because I'm anxious. I would argue definitely you can do it and it probably makes you more capable and more able because like anything, you can turn adversity, you can turn challenges around and make them work for you. You know, you don't have to listen to that voice. And what you can do is you can look at other people who have been successful and who have achieved and know that at some point they've probably had similar doubts, but it hasn't stopped them and they've moved forward. And they're the people to focus on. Focus on people who, who are driven, who are committed, who make things work, because that's where, that's where you'll find your inspiration. Always moving forward. It's always moving forward yeah. and, and always kind of... Our minds can be incredible things, but they can work against us. And you've Mm. got to know that sometimes when you've got us... Look, remember, 60 to 80% of our thoughts are automatically negative. I I read this the other day. This is harbour programmed, you know. Because we're ready for fight and flight, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. socially back in the day that would have been helpful. But we've evolved and we've developed a lot more now. But primarily, we're hardwired to think negatively. 
and that doesn't work for us as human beings, which is probably why we struggle so much. It's your job and your responsibility as a human being to know that, but mm-hmm. also to know that you can work against it mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. can reprogram. Mm, gosh. That's where the power comes in. And then something we're speaking more and more about, and it's a you know hot topic and always will be, will be social media and affecting our mental health. It's something that we're still working out how to use. And I almost reckon I was just doing some work on the next 10 years, not just Holly and Co, but the 10 years and trends and everything like that. Right now it's addictive and damaging. And I almost reckon we might not even know how to work it out before it's even gone. You know, if I think about Harry talking about Instagram or Facebook in 10 years time, I don't think he will be, you know, just much as much as a silly phone that you hold around in your hand, how archaic that will be. But I'd love to hear your professional sort of opinion, because we use it every day in, in small businesses. I love it. It is my business. I have such a great community. And it's something that has given me such pleasure, always Mm. will. How do you navigate it to, because if it's a tool for small businesses, there is this element where, you know, you can't necessarily put it down, put it away, if you Mm. like it and enjoy it. But what happens when it starts turning against you? Yeah, I mean, I've got a really conflicted relationship with social media. So I wasn't on any of the mediums at all until early this year. You know, it was when the book came out, I thought I'd better do it because I had a real aversion to suppose in my world. I hear people all the time, particularly younger people coming in and saying, I just feel awful about myself. Everyone else is having a great time. Everyone else's life is great. I go on to Instagram and I just feel miserable because people are beautiful. They look great. Their lives are happy um, or they're upset because they only got 10 likes for a post. So I've steered away from it for years because I thought I don't want to buy into that validation seeking Um, how many followers do I have because I just kind of think it's a road to we we then start comparing our lives but I also think it's about when you're using social media as a business tool it's about if your passion's there you have a core message that you believe is important and you use it in a way that works for you and is authentic then I think it can be used really really effectively but I think if you start measuring your success based on that world it can become dangerous because I think sometimes power can be in one post can be powerful Mm. and significant you often talk a lot Mm. about one conversation Mm. can change your life Um, I had a powerful thing happening tell me if I'm talking too much but I had a really powerful thing happening I was really this is all about you I'm glad (laughs) you're talking a lot I'm loving every second of it thank you I um I really had a battleground in my head a couple of months ago about the rights and the wrongs of doing it and should I do it and I would be making videos and I'd sit down I mean I'd sit down in front of a camera and I would suddenly freeze at the beginning I was thinking, oh my God, I'm becoming one of these people who are making videos. It's making me cringe and I want to run away. And why am I doing this? Um, I mean, honestly, one day it took me a day to get a one minute video. I just felt embarrassed. I really wanted to hide under a quilt or something. Anyway, long story short, I, you know, people were saying, look, it's important. You should do it. And so anyway, I kept doing them and practicing. And I mean, God only knows what the first videos were like. I'm afraid to even look at them. But anyway, they're there. Have a look. Have a look if you want. Anyway, I kept doing them. And um, I think it was probably about two, three months ago, I put one out on how to manage low mood. I think I talked for about a minute or two and just about a few tips on managing a bad day and what, you know, how, a few things that might just make a difference. And later that day, it was about 10 o'clock at night, a guy messaged me on Instagram privately and businessman married a couple of kids and he said I want to say thank you for the video earlier he said I was an orphan killing myself 
haven't spoke to your doctor, haven't oh. told my wife. I was just feeling hopeless and the video touched me and I told my wife and I'm getting help and I want to say thank you. And it was it was incredible for me actually because instantly it made me stop and think, okay, there is value. This is why I should do this. This is not about how polished I am or how it looks or how it sounds or how many likes or followers. This is bullshit. And from that, actually, I've got a really new relationship with how I use social media because I think if one, so if one post, one quote, one interaction makes a small difference, then I've done my job. And all of our Gosh. jobs are about making difference, Thank really. Goodness, he reached out to you. Yeah, we I, had. A, I recently did a post actually on a, a lovely lady who sent me a, a a card. She had come to the congregation of inspiration, and as she walked in, she had been asking herself if her children would be better off without her. Mm. She had two girls. The congregation gave her something, and gave her this new lease of life. And she went to seek help, mm. and she's getting help. And she's manipulated her business into something that is giving her purpose. And Mm. I think that this is something I just, before we finish, like to touch on, because I think you and I have, we have purposes. I think you and I would do this, whether it was a business or not, because we want to help people. And there's a purpose in this. And from that purpose, this person has received this um, enlightenment or help that has had such an incredible effect on their lives Mm. And we were privileged to be part of it yeah, in these yeah. two separate stories. And so I think that this is exactly right, where social media or what you do within your business, it's imperative to have depth within it, you know. Yeah. But actually, if you know that you're a vehicle, it's one of the things I always say to myself, you know, Holly, you're a vehicle here. You've got 14,000 days left. You're a vehicle. If you can do something with your vehicle, which is your body and your mind, then this is great. And all those yucky things that you start thinking about yourself and whatever should go out but you you have to recognize that you do feel it of course you do. but actually if you can change people's lives help them have a cause in your company affect a change within the environment provide business and employment and you know all those sorts of things it's just an amazing it's an amazing moment and where social media can be such a great thing I have three questions. Every time I do a talk or do a video, I have three questions that I run through in my head every time. And if I don't, if I don't answer yes to all three questions, then I won't do the talk or I won't do the work. And the first is, do I believe in what I'm talking about? Do I believe this is important? And thirdly, am I the right person to deliver this particular message? And if I can answer yes to all three, then I rock up and I do what I have to do because I think actually I do believe in it. I do think this is important and I do think I have the skill or experience to do this here. And if I don't, if I think I'm out of my depth or it's not my area, I won't do it. And I think that's the same for any business. You know, if you believe in what you do, Mm. you believe it's got a purpose, there's a mission, there's a a point to what you do. Mm. You go back to that every time. Mm. Mm. I think that's where the energy comes. And I think often we get lost in the detail. We get lost in the noise around. Whereas I know that for me, every single time, if I start to drift or I start to question or I start to compare, which is a bloody, you know, it's a really odd one for me. I was at the top of my career in the NHS, had done all of that stuff. Then I come into this different world where I'm at small fry in the very big pond. And you then start to notice there could be a human tendency to start to look at, oh my God, I don't have as many followers or, oh my God, look at how well they're doing. But it's like, well, I've never been in this world before. You know, this is mm. a new element mm. of my career. Mm. And I think there's real danger in that comparison stuff, you know. Mm. So I think, you know, 
stay with your purpose, your mission, where you're at in the journey at this given moment in time, because you don't know when things are going to explode or change and you don't know where. And I think, I often think that I'll be where I am when I'm ready at the right time. I'm such an advocate of your book. It's really practical. And as someone is always complaining, there isn't enough time. Mm. It's 10 minutes, as we said, in, in your day. And I'd say one of the most helpful parts of your book that I've found is just relearning, um, for instance, how to breathe. I mean, it's yeah. so simple, but especially when stressed, I've realized now that I forget to breathe or I have to get air into my lungs. And the, and the other day I was reading that animals that breathe faster, you know, die young and animals that breathe slowly live longer. And it's just really simplified this idea that you've just said, which is slow down and take those breaths, smell the roses, understand that you're, you know, you're present. Yeah, it was just one of those moments. And I know you've got huge success in your book. You were just saying it's published in 30 countries um there was a bidding war to get it even published and you've got an amazing loyal fans and celebrity endorsements and all these sorts of things did you ever think that this was going to be your path i mean i did not i did a talk the other day at an organization and when i got there it was quite funny actually they had my name on the door and it was a a big gig and there was lights and photos and this was this gig was been filmed and basically transmitted around the world to other parts of the organization no pressure and anyway I did it and it was fine it was a really good talk and I kept really balanced in my own head about what I was doing but it was funny I got the taxi home and I was sitting at home afterwards for a cup of tea and I said to my other half when he got in I said um I kind of feel like today's been so surreal. I feel like a competition winner on a radio. You know, like someone that's just <laughs> brought you in for the day. You've rang Capital Radio and they say, oh, we're going to give you yeah. a day where you're going to go in front of people and you're going to do this. It do- Some numbers I just have a bit, it feels a bit surreal because for me it wasn't part of a plan. Yeah. That was the interest. So thing. many people, you know, biz- when I hear when businesses start, Holly, I didn't mean this to happen. No, it I just sort of... It happened I was I mean we were laughing about this the other day because I'd kind of gone as far as I could have gone on the NHS I was a clinical lead for a mental health team I didn't want to go into writing protocols or policy for the NHS so I kind of think well I've climbed to the top of my career next I'll be probably pulled back a bit and then the book happened so when I was thinking I'm going to kick back and start winding down the book came out and of course as you know yeah, promoting the book yeah it didn't wind <laughs> down suddenly the book exploded and all the PR and yeah. work that goes into the book and then all the other opportunities that have been fantastic but the, you know the way I see it now is I just see it as a vehicle to do what I do but in a different forum yeah so I'm still doing my job yeah but just in a different but guise just in a different way what do you think um Tell me about that sort of change where we're going to see more people having to probably work for themselves, that, 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 that change where the responsibility is on themselves and a lot of people listening today and just mental health in general. Are, are we going to become more zen-like? Are we going to become more aware so we're going to be able to handle this better than, let's say, these awful statistics we hear in the press? I mean, I think it's, it's a twofold question in one way because I think Practically and realistically, things are going to remain challenging. You know, we live in uncertain times, politically, economically, socially. And if you look at a textbook definition of anxiety, it's an intolerance of uncertainty. So people who suffer anxiety struggle with uncertainty, and yet we haven't got any certainty anywhere. So I think the realist in me thinks that, look, certainty doesn't seem to be on the horizon anytime soon. But with the knowing that, I think then it's a real wake-up call for us all to really turn inwards a bit more. 
mm-hmm. and manage ourselves better because I think, you know, it's almost like sailing a boat. Sometimes you've got to navigate the sails a little bit. And I do think we're in stormy waters at the moment. I, you know, I suppose my, my argument always is, look, don't wait for things to change. Mm-hmm. The one thing that you have control over is yourself. Stuff will come and go all of the time. There will be highs, there will be lows, there will be uncertainty. It's always been that way and it's always going to be that way. That's how it is, but it's how you manage and the, and, and adjust your way through that is key. Gosh. And do you feel that you found a place? Because, you know, you were ahead of, you know, as you said, top of your game, 80 people working for you, all those sorts of things. Now you've got a life where you're writing your second book. You have lovely Mark, your dog walking, no London armpit commute, you know, doing what you're doing. You're at an age where, you know, you're more confident in who you are. Do you feel that you've come to a stage in your life where you're the happier version of yourself? That's a, that's a, it's a really good question. I think I know myself better. Um, I want to be happier than I am sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, like every other human being on the planet, I can get sucked into the demands. Right. So I'm, I'm finding ways. I'm, I'm, I feel very blessed and privileged with my life, even though it's, it hasn't been a smooth road. I feel very blessed and privileged that I've been given incredible opportunities. I think inherently I'm a happy human being, but I think sometimes I get distracted easily yeah. by the noise and I'm working much, much harder because I believe I can't write about what I write or do what I do and not try to live it mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I think when, when we talk about what I do at the minute, I'll write in the books and walk in the dog. I'm actually busier than I've ever been in my career. Yeah, I'm busier than I was when I was running a full time NHS team. So it's incredible, even though it sounds lovely and it sounds yeah. great, it's actually bloody hard. Yeah, sometimes. oh, it is. And it it's is. just me because it, I have to write the books. Yeah. I have to give the talks. I have to write the articles. I can't really dish stuff out to anyone. Well, also, at the you're moment. having the first sort of, you're having your first journey as an entrepreneur. Yeah. You and know, that's it's bloody scary. It's, it is, it's, it's bloody really scary. It's scary sometimes. And I just think, oh, God, you know, if the clients don't rock up or a gig falls through. Well, yeah. You I know, mean, it's I've, all on you. I've had a steady salary all of my career. So, and because I never planned to be an entrepreneur, I mean, my, I mean, Mark, my other half will tell you what I'm like. I mean, I couldn't switch on a computer when we met. <laughs> oh, it has been such a pleasure. We're coming to the end of the interview. And I use this analogy that being on this, you know, this business roller coaster is pretty epic. Um, can I ask what you would say one of your biggest lows has been so far? I think the lows were the entrepreneurial stuff are the I think until you've run your own business you don't realize how lonely it can be Mm. because you're doing a lot of the stuff there's a lot of weight there's a lot of responsibility on your own and I think there's been a few times when it's felt quite isolating Mm. because you're at home you're writing the books you're preparing the talks I've been part of a team most of my career so I found that part difficult Difficult. Um, the kind of loneliness around navigating your way through and making sense of it so I found that probably the, the, the a the couple of points part. when I felt yeah I've, like, oh, that's tougher than I thought and that's when community can be a nice thing actually to know yeah, yeah. that you're building a community and conversely a high on this entrepreneurial journey I think the high point was probably when the, the book came out because I had no clue genuinely mm. I think I bumped into you actually I'm just I having did? a flashback on I think it had just come out on the day it? you were walking to Waterstones do you remember that's right it had just come out you were walking to Waterstones and I gave you that tip when our um, book came yeah. out <laughs> which was that we put it to the top shelf so every single shop we went to we would take it from number 
25 and, and put it, it in number one. And I gave it? you that nice illegal That's tip. That's right, yeah. And, I, and you know what? Something funny that day happened. I think that was actually a low point that day because the book had just come out. It was post-Christmas. And I think when I went to Waterstones that day, they didn't even have it out oh. in the shelf because it was just post-Christmas and everything was a bit disorganised. And I remember thinking when it first came out, the fear was, oh my God, is anyone... Yeah. But I want this. And I suppose the high point in the whole thing was three days in, I did a Michael Ball interview on Radio 2. And I, I, my fo- I'd been away somewhere that afternoon and I noticed there were loads of messages on my phone. I thought, why have I got so many texts? And then I'd seen one of the texts, I think it was from Bev, and she said, You're, you've, you've hit the top of the charts. Oh. And, I thought, <laughs> and then the, the PR team contacted her. And I'd, so I got to number three wow. in the chart and, set, and number one in self-help. And and that was just, I mean, I think Michelle Obama was number one. So, you know, I'm yeah. never going to beat that. Yeah. Joe Wicks is number two. Joe had another new book out at the time. And I just thought it wasn't even on my radar that the book. Yeah, you just wanted one person to buy yeah, it. Yeah, and I think it was just going on Michael Ball that day doing the interview talk. And we just had this massive surge. surge. And then when I saw it in number one, self-help, I mean, never in my wildest dreams did I think. Oh, congratulations. That was on the, cause it a was, pinch yourself moment. It was just eh? lovely. It was just. I yeah. hope you took a screen grab of it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was a huge moment, a really big moment. And someone that's inspired you that you think I could maybe interview for this podcast. Well, it's somebody we know. Actually, I, I thought about this. I mean, Bev has been a massive mm. inspiration to me. Oh, and that's Bev James, Bev so James who yeah. also runs the coaching academy. Coaching academy, and is just a, a seriously amazing human being, She's, and I can vouch for that. Yeah, yeah. So I would say she would be great, and I think someone like that who's mega successful in her field. But I suppose really someone like Bev James, um, it's not just her her business mind but it's how she is as a human being yeah because I think one of the things I discover is that you don't always find authenticity in this world no particularly in business and I think it's sometimes really difficult to know who's genuine and who isn't and I suppose for me meeting Bev pre-book um she was somebody who taught me a lot about business and how to develop and how to to sell you as a brand really but she also has taught me a lot about how you can be all of that and be a very decent kind authentic human being and that's exactly uh, and I think what she's she like is. genuinely inspired genuinely inspired by yeah. her she's just a beautiful and human being been... thank you so much thank Owen. You, Holly. It's well been what thank a you. wonderful person you are you survived so much the conflicts on your doorstep be it bullying homophobia the actual environment that you were in you use those experiences to develop what seems to be acute empathy and an incredibly, uh, you know, emotional, intelligent human being and huge passion, I can tell, genuinely looking at the twinkle in your eye for caring for other people. And now you've built a business and you're on this beautiful beginning parts of it. And I can't tell you enough hold on to every moment that's happening right now yeah. because it is just like a business child just try and recognize this meeting you're doing it's just it's just amazing to know you so congratulations Thank you. um but for now it's time that i hand over and as anyone who listens to this podcast or anyone new to this podcast it's a moment where i ask my wonderful guests if they could have taken a moment out to write a letter to their younger them, the younger Owen, and to share a little bit of their soul with us. So I hand over to you, Owen, and thank you. Thank you. So this is, um, I thought a lot about this, but this is a letter to my seven-year-old self. I wasn't sure how far back I would go, but this seemed the 
the right thing. It was actually quite cathartic to write this. Oh, I'm so and just kinda, Yeah, so this is kind of going back to a seven-year-old and hopefully up to where I am now in my life. So I started, Dear Owen, you're about seven-year-old as I write this to you, and you're a bubbly, friendly, energetic kid who just wants to be happy and, more importantly, fit in. You like being nice to people and you don't really understand why everyone can't be like this. Belfast is quite a scary place to live at the moment and I need to tell you that that's probably going to get a little bit worse. The bombs, the bullets will continue and a family member will be killed which will devastate your mum. This will be a really tough time. You also need to understand that you're different to the other kids. You will learn to play piano, your voice will be higher than the other boys and you will then start to find other boys attractive. In short, you're gay and for that you'll be bullied shamed, laughed at, and at times you will feel a bit lonely. You will find a tribe of like-minded friends, but you will never fully fit in, and Ireland will never be your home, so you'll leave for London. This will be one of the best things that you'll ever do. As an adult then, you'll sometimes doubt if you're enough, and you'll sometimes be anxious, and this is purely because of growing up in the troubles, the bullying, and the church also telling you that you're possibly going to go to hell. You've got to learn to not listen to any of this stuff and in time you'll realise that you are enough, you do fit in and your difference can be celebrated. Life will bring for you ups and downs but you'll meet a terrific partner, you'll educate yourself, you'll travel the world and you'll build a good life. You will also experience loss, grief, disappointments and your hope of becoming a dad won't be fulfilled. However, you will learn to work with people who suffer and use all of your own experience to enrich their lives in the work that you do. Not only will your career flourish, but you'll become a lead in the NHS and then go on to write a best-selling book, set up your own business and set out an animation to help people lead calmer, happier lives. You must remember that all the judgments, the rejection, the being mocked, the made feel different will one day become a strength. None of this was ever about you personally. It was simply about people's intolerance of difference, nothing more. Be compassionate and kind to these people because they probably need it more than most. Finally, remember you are responsible for your own happiness and I want you to remember three key things. One, your difference is your strength. Two, you are worth celebrating. And three, always give something back to life and the others. In the end, that's all that really matters. Now go forward with courage, live your life, leave a legacy and above all, never be afraid to taste all of life. Everything will teach you something. (laughs) And that's my letter. You're so worth celebrating. Thank you. You're so worth celebrating. It's and hard be- reading that, isn't it? It's really, really interesting when you get <laughs> that personal about yourself. It's really difficult, but it's It's important. really difficult. And it's one of those moments where I look at you reading that letter and I just think the little Owen to the big Owen I see today yeah. and everything in between. And I get to sit with you and have it all packaged up and in front of me. And it's just a wonderful thing. And I hope everyone listening goes and follows you on Instagram, gets your book. And we all just champion you on your journey because it's going to be bright. Thank you so much. I'm really honoured to be here. So thank you. Oh, bless you. Thank you. NatWest again for sponsoring this podcast. It wouldn't exist without them and I know how many small businesses this podcast is actually helping. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering business owners. To make use of their free NatWest Business Hub, which is full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals, go to natwestbusinesshub.com. 
Also, have you heard of their incredible mission to help 400,000 more women start a business by 2025? To help female founders launch and scale their business, they have launched Back Her Business, a programme which helps women prepare their business idea for crowdfunding. Now, here's the best bit. Most of the funding will come from the crowd, where NatWest has teamed up with Crowdfunder. But the bank will provide a top-up in funding and will be offering up to 50% of an individual's fundraising target, capped at £5,000, for certain successful projects. Yes, you heard right. You could win the ability to have the amount you raised, if £5,000 or under, matched by NatWest. I wish I'd had this opportunity available when I launched Not on the High Street or even Holly & Co. Head to natwestbackerbusiness.co.uk to find out more. Also, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. My mission is to help everyone build a business doing what they love. I've seen how happy founding a business based on your passions can make you and I want everyone to have that fulfilment. Happiness is the new rich and using your business as a force for good is the new way of doing commerce. So let's create a nation of happiness happy entrepreneurs that are changing the world for the better. Can I ask you a question? Might you help me on this mission? If you like what you've listened to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Thanks so much. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come